the message of that song sounds in a number of just straightforward theological propositions. It's called a penal substitutionary atonement. The heart of the gospel. In free and willing obedience to his Father, the Lord Jesus Christ has stood in the stead of sinners, has died as a sacrifice for their sin and guilt, has propitiated the Father's wrath toward them, has reconciled them to God, has redeemed them from the bondage of sin and death, and has conquered the rule of sin and Satan in their lives. By receiving the full exercise of the Father's wrath against the sins of His people, Christ satisfied God's righteous anger <clears throat> against sin and therefore turned away His wrath from us who had it not been for our substitute Jesus Christ were bound to suffer this wrath for ourselves in the eternal torments of hell. Do you understand what Christ has done for you? The, it's too much to take in, right? Too much to take in. Well, the lesson before us tonight, I've given the title, Persevering by Grace Through the Race. Persevering by Grace Through the Race. Obviously referring to the Christian life. I have a, a niece who lives right over here in Yorktown who, when she was a little bit younger, participated in women's triathlon races. As you probably know, the triathlon is an endurance sport that brings together three consecutive disciplines, swimming, cycling, and running. It's a grueling race. You may have watched one on television before. Those who practice it maintain a severe training schedule for a year to be able to face the demanding and grueling conditions of the race. The physical conditions, the mental and emotional conditions of the race are demanding and grueling and require perseverance. Perseverance. The Bible, as you probably already know, compares the Christian life to an endurance race. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the price? Run, Paul says, in such a way that you may win. Paul wasn't just running this race. He was running the race to win. Philippians 3.14 says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here, Paul uses the analogy of a marathon runner to describe the Christian's spiritual growth and maturity. We as believers have not reached our goal of Christ-likeness. He mentions that down in verses 20 and 21 of Philippians chapter 3. But like the runner in a race, the true believer vigorously pursues this goal to the very end. 
And so the text that we're going to study tonight also compares the Christian life to an endurance marathon race. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Follow along in the Bible as I read these three verses. Therefore, since we have surrounded, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The overarching theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ and the new covenant over Moses and the Old Covenant and the Levitical system. In other words, the superiority of Jesus Christ and the New Covenant over Judaism. And that is the theme throughout this particular epistle that we have here to a group primarily of Jewish believers. In the first two verses that anchor our text tonight are really anchored in one main verb, which is found in the phrase, let us run with endurance. Let us run with endurance. This command really establishes the focus of this particular passage. <clears throat> First of all, it indicates an active participation. God has not called his children to sit on the sidelines. We haven't been called to take it easy and just meander through life like a Sunday afternoon stroll. We've been called, rather, to run a marathon race. We can't be passive like spectators sitting along the side of the road cheering other super gifted Christians on in the race. Well, you know, I can't really be involved in the race because I'm not a super gifted Christian, and so I'm just going to sit back here in my pew and watch everybody else run the race. No, that's not the way it is. We've all been called to run. We've all been called to run this race of the Christian life. That is, if we have been called to Christ. If we've been called to the gospel. So this command here, let us run with grace, not only indicates an active participation, but it indicates an agonizing participation. This race, in other words, is not a sprint, but rather it is a marathon. And a marathon is characterized by endurance. We can see this in the first place, by the word race here in this verse. Let us run with endurance the race. The word race here has its root in the word translated agony. This refers to intense pain of both mind and body. It refers to anguish, to struggle, to a contest. It's not a bed of roses. Rather, it's a, it's a struggle. It's a fight. 
And that's important for us to understand right up front because really it governs our expectations as we run this race. Governs our expectations. Jesus talked about counting the cost of following him. You remember that in Luke chapter 14? Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, Luke chapter 14. And really, you have to have that mindset as you run the race of the Christian life. You have to stop and count the cost up front. There are those who profess Christ, who think that they've entered the race of the Christian life, but they run as it were a hundred meter sprint. They start the race fast, but as the race continues, they soon start to slow down and give up and finally just collapse and drop out altogether. For, for a short time, they might attend church. They might begin a discipleship class, even begin to practice some of the disciplines of the Christian life, but then suddenly, just as soon as they were there, they're out, they're gone, they're off the, the track. They're like what we in Mexico call la flor de un día, a one-day flower, a flower that comes up in the morning and is gone in the evening. They run the 100 meters quickly, begin to fade and collapse before reaching the finishing line, really before even reaching the halfway line. They're like the seed dropped on the rocky soil. They're like the seed among thorns in Jesus' parable of the sower. <laughs> They're people who make superficial commitments to Jesus Christ and then they drop away because their conversion, in fact, was not genuine. Their profession was only a momentary confession, not genuine conversion. God says that the Christian life is a marathon and that all true Christians will persevere in the faith to the end. <coughs> Another indicator that this race requires perseverance in second place is that the writer affirms that it demands endurance. He just simply says, let us run with what? Endurance. Let us run with endurance the agony. The word endurance here is the key to tell us how grueling this race is going to be. When we're faced with the adversities of life, perseverance is required. Perseverance is characteristic of the person who doesn't deviate from the gospel, doesn't drop out of the race, stands firm, remains steadfast. My niece says that the most difficult aspect of the triathlon is when one of the participants is faced with an unexpected difficulty or challenge. For example, she has been stung by a jellyfish in the water while she was swimming. She's had a flat tire on her bike during that portion and muscle cramps in her legs while she was running. She says that when something unexpected like that happens to you during the race, you have to resist the temptation to give up. You have to refocus on the goal and you have to keep on running, enduring the afflictions. That's the way the Christian race is, isn't it? Many of the afflictions in this life happen without warning. 
You remember with four rapid fire disasters, Satan destroyed or removed Job's livestock, servants, and children. Bam, 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 just like that. Gone. Job's wife, in fact, encouraged him to give up. Curse God and die. He said, you speak as a foolish woman. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? You see, Satan had gone before God and he had argued before God that the only reason that his servant Job feared him was because of God's blessings in his life. The only reason that this man serves you and loves you is because you have blessed him with all of these wonderful things. If you will take them away, I guarantee you, he will no longer serve you. Well, that's my interpretation. But because Job was a genuine worshiper of God, he said in chapter 13, verse 15, even if God kills me, I will hope in him. Although Job didn't understand the reasons why God had allowed all of these horrendous, unexpected trials, he still trusted God. He was willing to die trusting in God. He persevered. He persevered. Now, before we go any further in the text, there are a couple of things that, that I would like for us not to overlook. First of all, our text says that we are to run the race that is set before us. Have you ever noticed that phrase? Here we see the sovereignty of God. We've been, we talked a little bit about this last night. This refers to the course of your life that the sovereign God has marked out for you. We don't choose our life race. God does. Ultimately. Remember, immediately after Saul's conversion, God said of him, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It was God who determined Paul's race. It is God who determines your race that you run. The same God who makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters is the same God that leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. God is the one who marks out your race for you. You say, well, I don't, I don't like parts of the race that God has marked out for me. I don't like that this course has gone over these glacier-covered mountains. I certainly don't like that the course of my race has gone through these low country swamp filled gators here in South Carolina. I certainly don't like that my race has gone through this dry hot desert. Why does it have to be? Because the sovereign God has outlined your race. You say, well, I, I, I thought I had outlined my race. Well, yeah, you have. But ultimately, God has set the race before you. So, you won't be able to run by faith unless you submit your will to God's will. Lord, you have set this before me. You are the one who has done this. And the second thing that we need to understand is that while an Olympic marathon race
which has many similarities to the Christian life, there are two important differences. First of all, we're not in competition with other Christians in this race. They are not our opponents. We are not running to outdo each other. We're not even running to outdo each other in righteousness and faith and recognition. It's not a race of works, but a race of faith. And we don't compete with each other even in that faith. Rather, you know who our opponents are? You know who our enemies are? You know that, right? Our own flesh. This corrupt and perverse world and the father of lies, the devil. These are our opponents and they're worthy opponents. Secondly, we need to understand that our strength to endure the race is in God and not in ourselves or in our strength. Otherwise, we would never endure this marathon. We persevere in faith by the power of God and by his grace. God told Paul, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. God's enabling Paul to endure his thorn in the flesh was entirely sufficient, completely adequate. In other words, essentially God told Paul, you don't really need the thorn removed. All you need is my grace. That's all you need. All you need is my divine enablement, my grace, my strength, my wisdom, my favor. That is all you need to keep running through these afflictions of your life. And so it is with the trials of the Christian life. We can't endure in our own strength, but His grace is completely sufficient. So the whole point of this passage before us tonight is to run the race of the Christian life with endurance, with perseverance. That's the whole point of this particular text. But then the question arises, how can I run this race with perseverance? Well, obviously by God's grace. But then, in this text... The writer of Hebrews has outlined a number of ways to help us know how we can run the race of the Christian life with endurance. He's outlined them right here in this text for us. And I would like for us to look at them tonight. First of all, the first commandment we see here is we are to study the forerunners of the race. What he says there in verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. A key element for you to run the race of the Christian life steadfastly is to be encouraged by the lives of past saints. The author of Hebrews is motivated by the multitude of saints who had run this race before. This cloud of witnesses provides motivation for us. Well, how does that happen? It happens because they provide encouragement to us. As we look back at them and their lives of faith, their lives encourage us. Their lives motivate us. 
When you meet someone that's walked the journey of life before, and they persevered by God's grace through faith, it's just encouraging, isn't it? It's just encouraging. I would like to just sit down and talk with you. Could we do that? Could we have coffee together? Could we have lunch together? Could we meet together? I would just like to talk to you. Just encouraging to meet somebody like that. So he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, it's referring to the hall of faith in chapter 11. <clears throat> there are those today who talk about faith, but when you examine what they mean by faith, it really doesn't stand up to biblical scrutiny. As far as many are concerned, faith is nothing more than a feeling. It's nothing more than a positive outlook on life. But this rosy view of faith mostly means having faith in yourself. About becoming all that you're really meant to be. We hear a lot about that, right? Have faith in yourself and become all that you're really meant to be. <laughs> but faith is not something that you conjure up in yourself. It's not something that you add to the list of things that you need to do in order to become successful. If faith is all about looking inside of myself and discovering who I really am, then I'm going to be really, really disappointed because it's a mess inside there a lot of time. The biblical definition of faith is not about becoming a positive thinker. Instead, the Bible calls us to trust in something outside of ourselves, something external to us. Hebrews 11 recalls many Old Testament saints and reminds us of what God can accomplish through His people when they trust Him. That's what chapter 11 is all about. The key lesson here is not go out and do great things. It's not about you and me and what we can achieve if only we have enough faith. But rather, it's about who we are trusting in. The main theme of Hebrews 11 is trust in God. Trust in God. Verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith isn't just a feeling. Faith isn't just an impression. It's not just saying, well, I, I hope that it's true. Biblical faith means being certain about something. Notice those two words there. It says faith is the assurance of things so forth, the conviction of things not seen. Assurance and conviction. Faith is rock-solid trust that when God says something, that when God makes a promise, it is true and it is right. It is absolute assurance and confidence that God's word can be relied on. And there are two, two types of things that we know by faith, he says here. He says, first of all, what? Things hoped for. Things hoped for. Those are things in the future that haven't happened yet. And then he says, things not seen. Those are things in the past. Things that we weren't there to see. Or simply put, our faith is in what God has done and what God will do. Look at verse 3. 
of chapter 11. Verse 3 says, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. You weren't there to see God make the world, were you? No, nobody was. God asked Joe, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Well, you weren't there yet. So if you weren't there for these historical events, how do you know that he did it? You believe it by faith. Because God's word says it. Everything that happened in the past, we believe by faith because we weren't there to see them, right? Were you there to watch Noah build the ark? Were you there to watch Moses lead the Israelites through the Red Sea? Were you there to see Jesus die on the cross? No, you weren't. These are all events that we embrace as true by faith. <coughs> that doesn't mean that faith is without grounds. We have tremendous historical evidence in the divinely inspired Word of God that confirms what we know by faith. And so when we say that we have something, that we have faith in something that we can't see, or we simply don't mean that there are not good grounds to believe. It just means that we weren't there to see it with our eyes. So look at very quickly, we'll just, I just want you to see a couple of these things. Look at verse 4. Talks about Abel by faith. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And notice what's at the very end of that verse, verse 4. It says, Though he died, he still what? Speaks. Still what? Speaks. 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 Hmm. You know what that means? It means that the lessons of Abel's life are still applicable to us today because they are still speaking to us today as we look back at his life and study his life of faith and see that he absolutely trusted God and obeyed God in making the right kind of offering that God wanted him to make, and he did that by faith. And so his life still speaks and encourages us in that today. Look at verses 5 and 6, Enoch. Walk by faith, his testimony to God. And what happened? He was miraculously taken to heaven. Bypassing death. Verse 7, look at Noah. By faith, built an ark. Preached to an evil world. Walked with God in faith and obedience. Look at verses 8 through 19. Abraham. Abraham left his home without knowing where he was going. He lived as a foreigner in, a, in the promised land. He offered up Isaac, his only son. He looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He walked with God by faith, and his life still encourages us and speaks to us today about the life of faith. Joseph, the same way, verse 22. Moses, verses 23 through 28. He preferred to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin. In fact, this cloud of witnesses becomes so great that he begins to summarize, beginning in verse 32. Drop down to verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, and on and on and on he goes. They were, verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. 
Verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, therefore, you see that? Therefore. They encourage us. They encourage us. We are to meditate on the lives of these past saints. We are to be encouraged by them. We are to be motivated by them. But it also brings us great obligation. They've died. Their testimony has been transmitted to us through the scriptures so that we can follow in their footsteps. But now we are under the obligation to lead the same faithful testimony to those who follow us. That will be our children, our grandchildren, and the generations to follow. We walk by faith. We live by faith just as they ran by faith, just as they suffered for their faith. They died for the faith. And now it's up to us to run the race with endurance. That's our obligation. Although they're dead, their lives still testify to us. Hey, run the race well. Don't give up. Keep on running. Do you hear their voice? Maybe if you don't, it's because you haven't been reading the Old Testament. Because that's where their voice is. Maybe you haven't been reading... Christian biographies. Since the Old Testament, we now have many more witnesses after 2,000 years of church history. How many good biographies have you read of great men in the last 2,000 years? By the way, you know that you're an older man when most of the biographies you read are about the lives of people that you know, that you met, that you studied with, or under, that you ministered alongside of. Dr. John C. Wickham is just one example of that. I think his biography came out last year. Great, great biography. A great defender of creationism. I would encourage you to read it. So, number one, what are we to do to Persevere in the race of life. We're to study the forerunners of the race. Those people that have already run the race. We're to look at their lives, study their lives, be encouraged and motivated by their lives. Do it constantly. Number two, the second key to running well is to get rid of the fat. Get rid of the fat. Said, so let us lay aside also every weight. Every weight. The Olympic Games, as you probably know, began two and a half millennia ago. One historian describes the beginning this way, and I've left out quite a few details, but just let me read this portion. For many years, Greek athletes sought, sought ways to increase their speed. Finally, runners competed naked. According to Greek historians, this trend began in 720 BC when an athlete named Orsipos accidentally lost his underwear during a race that he won. Later, officials of the race ruled that athletes had to remove all of their clothing and compete naked. End of quote. By the way, did you know that it was the Greeks 
that established the gymnasium. Did you know that? Our word gymnasium comes from a, a Greek word that literally means school for naked exercise. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, Olympians still wear too, all too skimpy clothes, even today, even though they don't run naked. They might as well. But the idea here is to get rid of everything that prevents you from running well and enduring the race. That's the idea here. Get rid of the fact. Most races today are won not by seconds, but by hundreds of a second. If you've been watching any of the recent trials, you've, you've seen that. The slightest obstacle must be removed. Overweight is eliminated to the maximum. Swimmers shave their heads. All weight is removed. So the idea here is strip away any hindrance that prevents you from running the race well. The word weight here refers to many hindering load or encumbrance. We're not told here what it is. It's not necessarily a sin in and of itself. It could be something completely innocent and harmless, but it needs to be gotten rid of because it keeps you from running with greater endurance. If you got rid of the heavy hiking boots and put on some running shoes, you'd run better. If you got rid of that heavy backpack and dressed in shorts and a tank top, you would run with greater endurance. The point is that anything that weighs us down, that diverts our attention, that saps our ability to run the race with endurance should be stripped away from our lives. That's the idea. The problem isn't necessarily with the weight itself, but with the effect of the weight on us. It prevents us from running the race with perseverance. Too often our living the Christian life is undermined by concerns and activities that may be innocent in themselves, but have been allowed by us to crowd out the main purpose. There might be some relationship or relationships that distract you from pursuing Christ-likeness. might be some possession or possessions that you value too much might be some pleasure or pleasures that consume too much of your time. Whatever it is, Paul said, even if it's not a sin issue in and of itself, get rid of every weight that prevents you from running well the Christian life. Lose the fact. Number three. The third key or command here to running well is flee from the entanglement of sin. He says here, let us lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. That comes from the Legacy Standard Bible translation. I like that. I believe it's very accurate. That so easily entangles us. Perhaps there are several sins that entangle us, but the author puts the definite article in here, the sin. Thus it. So it may refer very well to a specific besetting sin that keeps on tripping you up. It could be a particular sin that just easily hooks you. But it doesn't refer only to besetting sins, but rather to all sins in our lives. You see, sin always begins where? It begins in our mind. 
And so we must judge all sin at the thought level, right? Where it's pride, lust, envy, greed, anger, grumbling, selfishness. All of these things originate, first of all, in the thought life. If we cut it off there, it goes no further, James says, chapter 1. But if you entertain these thoughts, they begin to incubate and develop into sinful words and actions and motivations. So the author's point here is you cannot persevere well in the Christian race if you keep tripping up over these besetting sins in your life. You're not going to make the progress that God wants you to make. The word entangle here is unique in the New Testament and it has a, a very interesting meaning, meaning. It means to skillfully surround and trip up. To skillfully surround and trip up. That's what sin does, right? Sin stalks us closely. Watches us. And just the right opportune moment. When our guard is down, pounces on us. Like a spider that wraps its web around the prey caught in its net. So it refers to the sin that constantly stalks us, always ready to entangle us. And of course, the inevitable result is to slow us down and even set us back in our progress toward being conformed from one degree of glory to another in the image of Christ. I remember a very vivid childhood experience when my dad took me raccoon hunting in Oklahoma at midnight. I was about seven years old, maybe eight. <clears throat> Suddenly, we got separated from the rest of the group and were surrounded by coyotes barking loudly. We turned and looked. There was a full moon. They were kind of up on a little cliff. There was maybe a pack of eight, nine, ten... Coyotes out there, the moon shining behind them, and were they ever part? They were looking down on us, looking at us. And of course, you know what I did, right? I cried. <laughs> That's what a seven-year-old child does when they get scared like that. Last we escaped from them, but for a long time I had nightmares about these coyotes. Such is the sin that entangles us. God says, get rid of it. Stop it. It's like a dirty, stinky, torn t-shirt that you absolutely love to wear. But God says, take it off and throw it away. Flee from the entanglements of sin. 1 Peter 2.1 Lay aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies. Long for the pure milk of the word. So flee from the entanglements of sin. Number four, the fourth key here to running the race of the Christian life well is to fix your gaze on Jesus. Verses two and three. The faith and the perseverance of the saints in the past bring us a whole lot of motivation and a whole lot of encouragement. But the author here exhorts us to look beyond that cloud of witnesses to the main witness. 
Jesus. The supreme example. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 calls Jesus the faithful witness. Jesus stands at the head of this cloud of witnesses as the supreme example. Jesus is the ultimate model for Christians. He himself is our motivation for running. And as such, we must fix our gaze on him. Our goal in this race is to become more like him, right? It is to please him in every respect. It is to serve him on this earth with all of our strength. The writer here outlines a number of Jesus' attributes to help us understand why we should fix our eyes upon him, to fix our gaze upon him. Let's just look at them quickly. It says, first of all, Jesus is the author of faith. The author of faith. It literally means captain or could be translated prince. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 says that God perfected the founder of our salvation through suffering. The word founder can mean author. Acts 3.15, you put to death the prince of life. Same word. Acts 5.31, whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior. Same word. So it means author. It means originator. The one who goes before the troops and shows them the way. All of these meanings of the word apply to Jesus with regard to faith. He blazes the trail of faith for all of his children to follow. He goes before us. He shows us how to live by faith in God. But it says also Jesus is the perfecter of faith. Jesus finished the course perfectly. He showed us how to finish well. How to finish well. <laughs> Paul says in Philippians 1 6, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Guys, when Jesus begins a good work in you, guess what? He doesn't leave it half done, he finishes it. He's going to finish it in your life. It's called glorification in the scripture. He finishes and perfects that work. He brings it to completion. It also says here that Jesus shows us the motivation to endure by faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The reason that Jesus endured the horrible prospect of bearing our sin on the cross was that he focused on the joy that was set before him. This joy included... According to Hebrews 2.10, the joy of bringing many sons to glory. He saw that. He knew that he was going to bring many sons to glory and give them to his father. And that joy that he saw ahead of him gave him endurance to run the race with joy well. Because he could see the end. He wanted to glorify his father by completing the work that his father had given him to do. So he persevered to accomplish the father's will. 
But then it says next, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. No one has ever endured a greater trial than the cross of Calvary. No one. Not only was there the shame of crucifixion, there was suffering, unspeakable, horrible, physical pains. But the physical pains of crucifixion were nothing compared to the wrath of the Father poured out on His Son. As Jesus endured the indescribable suffering of dying on a cross, He cried out to His Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus bore the outpouring of God's unmitigated wrath against sin in order to completely satisfy divine justice. In that period of darkness, in some incomprehensible way, the Father abandoned His own Son. In that hour of suffering, Jesus bore the full weight of every curse and penalty that our sins deserve. The cup of his suffering refers to the greatest of all sufferings, the wrath of God poured out on his innocent son as he was being made a sin offering for us. Jesus endured that, the most difficult trial ever endured. Jesus shows us the final reward of faith. He says he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus sits at the most exalted place in the universe, the place of all rule and authority. The angels worship him. His exaltation to the right hand of the throne of God shows us a glimpse of his glory that we will share throughout eternity after we have finished running our race on earth with endurance by His grace. Now, as we come to the end of our study, I would like to note four things about fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. First of all, fixing our eyes on Jesus requires taking our eyes off of ourselves. Steve Lawson says, and I quote, If I look at myself, I get depressed. If I look at those around me, very often they deceive me. If I look at the circumstances, I get discouraged. But if I look at Jesus, I am constant, consistent, and persevere with joy. I like that. So, fixing our eyes on Jesus requires us taking our eyes off of ourselves. Number two, fixing our eyes on Jesus requires, requires trusting all that He is for us. It requires trusting all that He is for us. Did you know that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Bible describes you as positionally being in Christ? As a believer, you are in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. 
In Christ we have redemption through His blood. In Christ we have forgiveness of our trespasses and sins. In Christ we have been showered with the riches of God's grace. In Christ we have an eternal inheritance. In Christ we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that's just the beginning. So number two, fixing our eyes in Jesus requires trusting all that He is and has done for us. He is all of these things for us. Number three, fixing our eyes on Jesus means trusting Him when sinners wrong us. When sinners wrong us. Consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself. To, to consider means to deliberately to deliberate carefully. Jesus balanced the joy that was set before Him over against the suffering of the cross. We need to consider that the more committed we are to Jesus, the more those who oppose Him will oppose us, no matter how nice we might try to be to them. Sometimes you think, well, you know, I think if I was just a little bit nicer, maybe, you know, maybe I wouldn't. No, it's not you that's offending them. It's not you that's offending them. It's the message that you are proclaiming that is offending them. I'm not going to make them nicer. Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will what? Persecute you. But we calculate, we consider carefully that the joy of knowing and obeying Jesus is greater than all of the rejection, greater than all of the anger, the ridicule, and persecution that we might have to suffer for His name's sake. <clears throat> so fixing our eyes on Jesus means trusting Him when sinners wrong us. Number four, fixing our eyes on Jesus is the key to not growing weary and losing heart. It says there, so that you may not grow what? Weary. Or faint-hearted. The LSB says fainting in heart. Don't faint in heart. Don't grow weary. So the reason that you should keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the reason that you should constantly deliberate on and consider Jesus is so that you won't grow weary and you won't lose heart in this race. We've all seen videos of little four and five-year-olds that, that you know they had in Children's Olympics that were running a race. They lined up there and mom had instructed this precious little child now I'm going to be down at the other end there and I want you to look up and you when you see me you run as hard as you can you've seen those right well we have somebody much greater than a mother greater love than a mother we should keep our eyes fixed on Jesus so that we won't grow weary and that we won't lose heart. Both of these terms here, by the way, growing weary, faint-hearted, can refer to physical exhaustion. They can also re refer to spiritual exhaustion. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, used both of these expressions to describe the condition of runners who collapsed from exhaustion after crossing the finish line. 
the author of Hebrews here, is his, his concern is to encourage the recipients of this epistle to run with endurance so that they don't collapse before reaching their goal. Apparently, there seems to have been some lack of resolve, some waning resolve on, on the part of some of them throughout the book in their race toward Christ because some of them were kind of pulling back and Judaism that they had left began to look very, very tempting to them and they were suffering because they had left Judaism and it had, had come into the new covenant and Jesus alone and they were being persecuted for that and oh, they were just kind of being drawn back so that they didn't have to suffer so much. Is your struggle against sin? Is your struggle against the extra weight that you're carrying around that is distracting you and getting the best of you? Causing you to grow weary and lose heart in your Christian life? Maybe there are some things going on in your life you haven't even told your wife. Haven't even shared with your best friend, your pastors. You're, you're just bearing it and struggling alone. And you're having a very difficult time fixing your gaze upon Jesus? Consider Jesus. Consider Him. Deliberate. Fix your gaze on Him. Jesus is the supreme example of perseverance. Of willingness to suffer in obedience to God. He faced hostility, even crucifixion. Nothing that we will be called to endure will be compared to anything that he suffered. The saints in chapter 11 left a great legacy. Their example, their faith, their perseverance, but Jesus is the supreme example. Consider that Jesus is the key to every problem. Consider that Jesus is the cure for every doubt. Consider that Jesus is the key to all persecution and unfair treatment. Consider that Jesus is the key to all weariness. We all get weary. These readers of Hebrews have not yet reached the end of their race. They must not collapse. The writer gives them four, five, six warnings throughout the epistle, warning them, don't turn back, don't turn back, don't turn back. Keep running, keep running, keep running. They must not collapse. And so it is with us when it seems to us that there is no end to our trials, no end to our afflictions, no end to our temptations. We must persevere through the conflict, through the race, remembering that Jesus has run before us and he provides all of the grace that we need to persevere. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted in the race. Consider Jesus. Put your gaze on Him. Don't take your eyes off of Him. My niece says that the most satisfying aspect of the race of the triathlon is crossing the finish line. <laughs> After many months of exhausting preparation, after two hours or so of grueling competition in the race, crossing the finish line brings great happiness and great joy. And so it will be, brothers, with the race of the Christian life. <laughs>
Someday, our earthly race will be over. It will be done. Whether with our death or whether with the coming of the Lord, we will be in heaven with the Lord. We may be very weary when we cross the finish line, but don't worry because we will fall and collapse into the arms of Jesus. There will be no more warfare with this world, with our flesh, with the devil. We will be with him. We will be like him forever and ever and ever. Our earthly race will be over. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that encouraging? Does that motivate you? Continue to run the race well? Let me just conclude by taking you to Revelation chapter 14 to a couple of verses tonight. I just absolutely love for any of you that ever have to preach at a, a funeral of a believer. Consider these verses. Revelation chapter 14, look at verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, or the perseverance of the saints. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints simply teaches that all true believers in Christ will never lose their faith in Christ. They will never lose their faith in Christ. The truly regenerate person will continually endure right to the end in obedience to the truth no matter what might come against them. So here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven, verse 13, write this, saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. I love that. I get sometimes so weary with life, with the labors of life, the afflictions of life, the trials of life, but God has called us to run the race of the Christian life with endurance by His grace. And you know what? He will, by His grace, bring us into His arms. And when we reach heaven, what does it say there? We will rest from our labors. Are you looking for that? By the way, that doesn't mean you're going to be floating around a little cloud in heaven all over the eternity. <laughs> There's going to be labor. There's going to be a lot of stuff that we're going to be doing throughout eternity. That's a bad conception that a lot of believers have that eternity is going to be a boring floating around. I don't know. That, we'll have to do that in another conference sometimes. But don't, don't do that. <laughs> So dear beloved, endure, persevere by God's grace. And this is how he says to you. Father, we thank you for your